Hey, good evening, everybody. Meteorologist Ricky Matthews here. It is the 10th of August. This is the Wednesday edition of the Carolina Weather Group, chatting about a few different topics tonight and missing a few of our regulars as well. It is vacation season, uh, but we've managed to get Kit back on. It's incredible after uh, a long absence for, for some reason or another. Kit, what's been happening? Well, I've been uh, in the process of moving into my new apartment. Um, it's not as glamorous as I would have hoped for the return, but I've got a number of posters that are sitting here on my desk uh, to go up on the walls around my room. Um, but I've got most of my stuff moved in, uh, just getting ready for school. That begins in two weeks from yesterday. So the uh, first, last, or last first day of school uh, coming up for me. It's that time of the year again. I remember those days, and now I think we don't have to remember those days. But uh, we also have, speaking of vacation, Scotty joining us tonight from a very awesome location that I'm jealous of. He is on the beach down in uh, what, North Carolina? Yeah, I'm on North Topsail Island, uh, vacation time. But I thought I would chime in at least for a little bit. Um, we're actually out waiting for some sea turtles to uh, hatch. But uh, it's been pretty uh, dull down here for the past few days, except today. We've had a, a nice onshore flow and several uh, decent rain bands coming through. Uh, if you looked on my personal Twitter and I think on the Carolina Weather Group Twitter as well, I posted a picture of a rain bomb that we had earlier today. So uh, just playing off of what we uh, talked about last week. But uh, all in all, it's been a, a great uh, week so far, vacation. Uh, temperatures in the upper 80s to low 90s and a few rain showers today. But besides that, it's been fairly quiet here uh, along the uh, North Carolina coast. And it's been a few weeks, months, and we've been able to do this. But I want you to notice with this close-up of Scotty how his hair still manages to stand <laughs> perfectly. That's right. No That's matter right. the humidity, no matter the showers, or the rain bombs out on the beach. That's right. You know, we, we had to make it look good tonight for uh, the on-camera because most of the week I've been wearing a hat. I got gotcha. you. All righty. Microbursts make it better. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. And then the tornado comes along and just messes up everything. Get that windblown look. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was uh, waiting for some water spouts today. I'm, uh, I'm jealous because Shay down in South Carolina, they've been hogging them all over the past few weeks. And now I'm down here this week and nothing. So, oh, well. I'm still waiting to see my first out in eastern Virginia. So you're not alone. Speaking of Shay. Let's bring him in as well, and I'll let him uh, say what's going on down in the Charleston area and then introduce our guest. Thank you, Ricky. Uh, yeah, Charleston, we've had some some effects from that Gulf low that was bringing in a southeast wedge or a southeast gradient to our area, so uh, quite the opposite from a northeast wedge. Sometimes we get the southeast wedge from a different direction, uh, especially when you have a weakened Bermuda high and sort of a retreating high um, out subtropical ridge retreating you get a little bit of a pinch of the gradient there. That was more so to Georgia, but it did bring us some pretty heavy rains and, sh and storms today among Charleston, more so than yesterday. We thought yesterday might be the higher of the two, so we had uh, a couple of inches of rain today, not too much, not too bad. It looks to dry out a little bit tomorrow, and then slowly the Bermuda High will rebuild, and we'll get back into our summertime southerly or south-southwesterly wind pattern. So that's kind of what we're expecting here in the next few days. Temperatures are uh, bearable. So we're in upper 80s to low 90s versus uh, what we were a couple of weeks ago for the month of July. And uh, we're really kind of enjoying that now. It's still hot and humid, but not quite as bad as it was a couple of weeks ago. 
as far as our guest tonight, we have Anthony Reyes from the National Weather Service Miami. He's here to talk to us about lightning. And Anthony, if you would like to introduce yourself from your WFO. Uh, sure. Thank you very much. Um, we appreciate the invitation. And um, it's always it's always a privilege for us to participate uh, with the online community. Um, I remember when I started my weather career, um, if it wasn't television or just plain radio, uh, we just couldn't get any kind of exposure, any kind of outreach to the community. So I really want to thank you for uh, the work, the Carolina group, the work that you're doing online. And I just wish other people will will follow the example so that we can get the message of preparedness and, and weather safety to the public with um, activities like this one. So I've been, on behalf of the Weather Service, I, a big thank you for you guys um, for inviting us and letting us participate with you here. Um, I'm transmitting from the National Weather Service in Miami. We are co-located with the National Hurricane Center, so it's one huge big building that houses um, both departments, and we, we work together when hurricanes are coming to the area. However, when it comes to local weather, um, when it, we're talking about thunderstorms, tornadoes, flooding, a lot of people think the Hurricane Center does that too. It's actually not. It's us. It's the National Weather Service that have all the responsibility um, in terms of severe weather operations, all the weather warnings, um, every time we have a severe thunderstorm, for example, that it comes from our office, from the National Weather Service. So for us, it's, it's, it's paramount being able to transmit the message of safety and weather awareness to the public. And that's why I appreciate these kind of outreach opportunities like this one tonight. And um, especially lightning, because lightning is, is something that I, I grew up with lightning. Um, I'm now in Miami. Before Miami, I, I spent a lot of time in the weather office in Tampa. And we all know that Tampa is the nation, the nation capital for lightning, right? That's why the hockey teams call the Tampa Bay lightning. But Miami gets its fair share of, of thunder and lightning, too. And before Miami, I grew up in, in a small island way to the east of, of the U.S. mainland, which is called Puerto Rico. For those of you trying to locate the accent, is from Spanish, which is not rare here in Miami, of course. And in Puerto Rico, we not only we have hurricanes, but we can have massive thunderstorms, especially in the late um, spring months when when the temperatures are getting warm. But we still can have the chance of having um, like cold fronts come going down all the way to the Caribbean islands. And when they collide with the mountains, that air collide with the mountains, we can, I mean, we have some massive supercells there. It's just that we don't have the ingredients for them to become tornadic down there. So it's, they're basically giant lightning storms. Um, here in Miami, we can also have the huge lightning storms, but we also can have tornadoes with them. So we kind of get the whole package here in South Florida. Uh, but uh, we're going to concentrate to the tonight in just going through the basics, some good information about lightning. And then I'm going to dedicate a couple of slides to safety, because we 
that is the biggest challenge when it comes to lightning and thunderstorms is to get people to take action and to never underestimate the power of a thunderstorm. So we're going to get into that um, on the details uh, with the presentation. That sounds great. So yeah, we talk about lightning and the, and the power of it, uh, and then we also have uh, some of the, the downside to lightning, uh, some of the fatalities and some of the things that occur with lightning and, uh, and not taking the correct safety precautions. So I did, I'm going to do a screen share real quick and let me know when you can see it. We're good. Okay, you're good? Okay. Uh, good. So this is the lightning fatality update from John Jensenius, uh, and this is on his distribution list. This is uh, the latest fatality we have was August the 5th, and that was Okaloosa Island from a, an umbrella attendant there. There were some storms last week running through along an undulating front, and uh, so someone got struck that was out on the beach, and, and about a week before that, a five-year-old up in Corova Beach, North Carolina. So that's a very sad story there. Uh, a lot of these could be prevented, and so I think 10 or 11, it may have been 11 of these were in the month of July alone, and if we go from the 10th through the 31st, we see that 11 of them occurred within a two-week, about a, I think that's about a three-week time span. So July happened to be a heavy month for fatalities and lightning. And if we go down to our chart for the latest, uh, and we see right now we're at 22 so far this year, we're, we're starting to approach last year's, and we're almost going to surpass 2013. But tell us a little bit about this graph and what that means demographically for uh, the safety outreach and, and public awareness on the topic of lightning. Well, uh, the first thing that we can notice is that despite the efforts of outreach and all the education um, efforts that we put on teaching people how dangerous is lightning, when you look at these numbers, it, it's, it, the message is really not getting through the public. There's a lot of people that listen, they understand the message. The problem is the moment that they have to take action, a lot of people decide to take the chance or to risk it. And that's a problem that we still have to uh, really, uh, we have to work very hard with in the next couple of years because we want to move people from understanding the problem to taking action, and that, that's the biggest challenge that we have in terms of outreach. Um, if you look at 2006, 48 fatalities, 45 in 07, and then um, for this year, we're basically almost halfway through the, the total that we had in 2006. So which means that if we keep this pace, we're probably going to match either 06 or 07 very easily. One of the biggest problems, why these numbers are like this, um, it's because the big population centers where a lot of people live, it's near the water. So we are attracted, we're naturally attracted to the water. And unlike, um, unlike a city or a subdivision development when, where we can run and hide um, on a structure or in a car, if you're on the open water, you're on the beach, you are completely exposed. And one key, one key element that people keep um, 
ignoring, if, if that's the word that we can use, is the fact that it's not the lightning bolt, like the, the, the streak of light, the indicator that you can be struck by lightning. It's actually thunder. So that's why we say with, when thunder roars, go indoors. And most people, they won't even think about reacting when they hear the first crack of thunder. Because you tend to think that as long as I don't see the lightning bolt or the lightning bolt looks like it's really far away, I'm okay. And actually the first the first rule in, in lightning safety is that as soon as you hear the first rumble of thunder, if you can hear the thunder, you are within striking distance. And when you hear the first rumble of thunder, that's when you have to put away all your toys. If you're, if you're on a boat, if you're flying kites, if you're working outdoors, if you're whatever you're doing outdoors, that's the moment for you to stop, assess the situation. And sometimes we get um, distracted trying to determine if the storm is coming our way or, or moving away. If you hear thunder, stop what you're doing. Just look for shelter, go inside, and wait, wait until the thunderstorm passes and moves away. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing screen there and um, kind of go into, I wanted to get some stats up there just so, so people could see like, how serious uh, the topic is for tonight and also uh, that we're, we've already had quite a few in the last month or two. Uh, and there's been a lot of storm activity, especially down in Florida recently with that Gulf low and even along the mid-Atlantic states and the southeast region. So tell us a little bit about lightning in general. Uh, I mean, other than it being a you know gigantic power source and, and beautiful in nature, it is one of the least understood topics in meteorology. Tell us what you know about how it originates and, and what it means. Sure. I'm going to uh, go ahead and share my screen. Let's see if you guys can see it. There it is. We got gotcha. you. Gotcha. You should be seeing lightning flats, right? Yes. Excellent. Well, when we're talking about lightning, of course, we all know it's an electric discharge. It's an exchange of energy between the atmosphere and the ground. And if we go with a more formal definition, uh, we can call it a giant spark of electricity. Uh, it moves through the atmosphere uh, on what we call a lightning channel. Lightning channel is it's a very important structure in lightning science because he, it's, it is the area, or if we want to call it the volume of air that actually transmits all the energy, all the power of the lightning bolt. It normally happens between clouds, the air, or the ground. And look at that number. Um, an average lightning bolt can actually carry up to 1 billion volts, and that's, that's a lot of volts. That also begs the question, um, when you hear on the news that people survive lightning strikes, and this is an open question. It, I'm not necessarily giving a, a strike definite answer. But um, the question we can leave open for discussion is, can human beings really survive a direct hit of a lightning bolt? And we know people survive um, lightning strikes, but is it the main bolt or is it what we call the side branches as 
the kind of like the side roots or the side branches of lightning spread outwards. Um, is are the people that survive a lightning strike uh, very lucky that they only get hit by the side branches or is the main branches? It's a it's an open question and and we can spend a lot of time trying to discuss that. But just keep in mind the almost incomprehensive power of of one billion volts in such a quick um, moment of time and in such a small space concentrated. That is an awesome amount of, of power. And then when we have a lightning strike, uh, it's normally uh, accompanied by what we call thunder. And it's important to make the distinction because for the general public, lightning and thunder are almost interchangeable. It's actually two different parts or components of a lightning strike. Uh, the thunder is not the lightning bolt itself. Thunder is the sound that a lightning strike produces. And that's because when um, lightning hits a target or it just it hits a cloud or, or, or it, it develops itself, um, the lightning bolt actually hits the air around it, especially on the channel, that lightning channel that we described that uh, it's where the power is actually being transferred from the atmosphere to the ground and vice versa. And the air right around the lightning bolt can heat up to around 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. How hot is 50,000 degrees? Well, the surface of the sun, of our sun, on the average, has been measured at around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you happen to be on the spot where you have a lightning strike, a direct hit, that spot can heat up to five times more than the surface of the sun. And this only happens in a few millions of a second or milliseconds. So you can imagine the tremendous amount of expansion that is happening because we all know that when you heat air, it expands. That's why hot air balloons can fly. But it happens so fast and it's so, so intense that it actually creates a shock wave or uh, what, we, what we also know as a sound wave. And the lightning bolt itself creates a shock wave approximately around 10 yards from the main bolt, from where you see the lightning channel and the main um, lightning bolt. Um, there's a very powerful shock wave that the air expansion generates. And this one is, like I said, in a radius of about 10 yards from the, from the point of impact. This shock wave is the one that when you hear stories from people saying that um, it was so powerful that it knocked them down, it, it knocks people down to the ground, that's the shock wave. And when that happens, that's very bad news for you because it means that you are very, very, very close to the lightning strike. And this shock wave can actually cause some harm to the human body, especially your ears. It can actually cause damage to your ears. When this shock wave travels beyond those 10 yards immediately around the, the main bolt, it disperses quickly. And from a shock wave, then it transforms itself into a sound wave. That sound wave is what we know as thunder. So that's the main distinction between the lightning bolt 
and the thunder. The lightning, it, lightning is the actual ball that hits the ground. The thunder is the sound that is produced by the massive air expansion, the heating and the air expansion of the air immediately surrounding that lightning bolt. And the lightning channel that I mentioned before, it's what describes the main bolt of the strike. It is amazingly small. On the average, a lightning bolt is not bigger than one or two inches. And this is like the average width of a lightning bolt. And the average length of a lightning strike is about five miles long. But it's very important to keep in mind that uh, lightning is known to travel much longer than just five miles. They can go 15, 20, 25 miles. The world record is actually over 100 miles from a thunderstorm that was measured in Dallas, Texas. And this is an extremely important thing to keep in mind because it is very easy and very obvious when you have a big thunderstorm around you. You're normally going to take action if you see a lot of lightning bolts happening around you and the thunder is getting louder and louder. But a lot of the fatalities and people that get injured in the US, uh, it happens during a phenomena that popularly is known as bolt from the blue. I'm pretty sure you guys have heard about this before. Right. And a, right. Bolt, and a bolt from the blue, does anybody know what that means? Want to chime in? Um, the way I've the way always I've heard, heard of it, it is, is like, like uh, it, you, you don't really have the thunderstorm overhead, so you just have the blue sky, and then all of a sudden a seemingly random uh, lightning strike happens right next to you or within your vicinity. That is absolutely correct, and it's called ball from the blue because exactly what you say, it happens when you can have even blue skies right on top of you right overhead. And it's like you said, the problem is that you don't need to have a thunderstorm overhead or in very close proximity for you to get hit. This bolt from the blues normally happen from an area of the thunderstorm where the main weather is not happening. And um, I don't have a, a I don't have a quick diagram of a thunderstorm, but a thunderstorm normally has two main areas. One is what we call the main tower, where you see all the rain and all the big activity, and you have all the updrafts and the tornadoes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other, the other part is called the anvil. It's like a long, big crown that spreads outwards, radially in all directions from a thunderstorm. And normally, this is associated with kind of like more stable. It's it's more mid-upper level clouds, and they look very harmless because they're not producing rain, they're not producing clouds, they're not producing tornadoes or anything like that. But these anvil clouds right on the top of a thunderstorm, they still pack a lot of ice and they can have a mixture of ice and liquid water droplets. So they are perfectly capable of, capable of producing lightning on their own. And it, it's this um, lightning activity that happens in the outskirts of thunderstorms that normally can produce those lightning strikes that can travel dozens or even over a hundred miles from the thunderstorm and hit a target way, way, way far from the thunderstorm. That's why the rule when thunder roar goes indoors is so important to remember because bolts of the from the blue 
are very significant in terms of causing fatalities and injuries here in the U.S. And Tony, I did find an anvil cloud um, diagram for you if you wanted to use that real quick. Oh, okay. So let me stop sharing that. Let's see. You seen it? Okay, out there. I've got it on my screen. Is, are you seeing it there? Uh, no, I can't see it. Uh oh. Oh well. I I'll just let you. Keep oh, I, I, see, I see your small version. Yeah, I think we can use that. <clears throat> okay. Um, oh, oops. Can you guys see it? Can you see the diagram? There it is. Yep, we got it. Okay. So if you look at the right-hand portion, at the left-hand portion of the diagram, you see this is that's what we call the main tower. And if you see all the arrows pointing upward, that's because that area of the thunderstorm is what is producing what is called the updraft. Updraft is very warm air that is ascending, and it normally happens right inside the core of a thunderstorm. So this updraft is capable of dragging with within a lot of liquid water, and as that water keeps getting higher and higher in the atmosphere, um, it turns into ice. Not all of it turns into ice, and then we start having interactions between the ice crystals and the water droplets inside the thunderstorm. That interaction, those collisions, is what start creating the electric charge inside the thunderstorm. And then as the storm develops areas of positive and negative charges, then you, that, that, that storm is primed to start producing lightning. Uh, that's why not all uh, storms that you see on radar actually produce lightning. If you see some of them, you have like big showers and you can see the red returns on radar. And for the untrained eye, you look at the images on TV or on the internet, you say, wow, this, that storm is, is going to destroy everything. It looks so red. But there's more to it. There's, the storms need to have vertical development, first of all. And second, they, there has to be a, the correct distribution between ice and water droplets inside the, inside the cloud. And that's why sometimes you can get a massive downpour that creates a lot of flooding, and you get no thunder, you get no lightning. That's because the correct mixture of light of, of water droplets and ice is just not there because especially here in South Florida, it's so warm, it's a tropical environment. So sometimes the clouds cannot develop vertically enough to create enough contrast between the amount of, of ice crystal and the amount of water droplets inside the thunderstorm. Um, however, if you look at the diagram, once you hit the very top of the storm, you see that little dome on the left-hand upper corner that's what we call this, the thunderstorm dome. That's where the updraft stops. So that ascending air has nowhere to go because it's probably hitting almost the troposphere by now. Troposphere is um, an area of the atmosphere where um, vertical motions cannot keep going. It's almost like a lid. Um, you know, for those that are not very familiar with thunderstorm um, uh, structure. I know that most of the panel here know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, that's why I don't, I don't want to get too technical about the portions of the thunderstorm. Let's keep it simple and, and better way for everybody to understand it. 
And once the air hits that top of the thunderstorm, it has nowhere to go vertically, so it has to expand in all directions, horizontally. So as the air expands, it's dragging with it some of that ice that I was talking about earlier. And if you follow the top of that thunderstorm towards your right-hand side of the diagram, that's what we call the anvil. That area, if you see, has basically nothing below it. There's no rain. There's no a lot of wind associated with that area of the storm. But sometimes there can be enough mix of ice and water droplets in that portion of the thunderstorm that it can generate thunder. That area is where you normally are going to have the bolts from the blue. Because even if you can see the edge of the anvil in the distance, it probably could be far enough for you to have blue skies overhead. And that's when the bolt from the blue can come from. And that's, uh, that's why we always tell people, if you can hear the thunder, you are within striking distance when thunder roars, go indoors. That's right, Tony. I can certainly attest to that along the South Carolina coast. We have stronger sea breeze even sometimes, so you have the storm buildup inland, and a lot of people here are familiar with, or even along the southeast coast, most, most areas of the United States coastal, people are familiar with the term sea breezing, but what they don't understand is the sea breeze buildup with, with these thunderheads, these cumulonimbus clouds, and these giant anvils, is I've seen lightning arc out from 10 to 20 miles inland out into the ocean. Uh, it sort of catches everyone off guard, and it, of course people are, whoa, uh, where did that come from? So yeah, I can certainly attest to, to what you were uh, talking about, bolt out of the blue. Um, that, that is a very common thing that we see here. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you for, for, thank you for the help. We really appreciate it. I love it when we have participation from, from the panel and the audience. So if you look at the thunderstorm lightning process, a very simplistic way to put it, because as the panel knows, this is a very, very um, complicated subject. It's very technical. A lot of stuff is happening in the atmosphere for us to actually witness a, a lightning bolt. But making a very simplified model of the basic, of the main concepts of, of lightning formation, um, it starts with what I mentioned earlier, um, the processes that are happening inside a thunderstorm or a cloud, which are governed by the interactions of hail, ice, um, colliding with the water droplets. And when I say water droplets, I mean basically the raindrops that are floating, um, suspended in midair by the updraft. And sometimes some of these um, Water droplets can become what in meteorology is known as supercooled. Supercooled droplets, it's a, it's a fancy term to describe uh, a drop of water that the surface of it is becoming very close or just, a just on the point of freezing. So it has a coat of very thin ice around it, but inside it remains liquid. And this is very important because these are the particles that are capable of producing those, um, those differences in electric charges inside the clouds. And as the updraft keeps pushing upward the water droplets, they start colliding with the hail and the ice that is in the, in the mid and upper levels um, of the cloud. 
the interaction of these elements it's what causes the eventual separation of electric charges inside the cloud and normally um, you can see in this diagram I'm assuming you guys are seeing the, the diagram because I didn't hear any complaints so yes, you guys sir. can see yes. right? excellent so as this process intensifies you can see on the first panel to the left that um, it actually polarizes the cloud. Um, the heavier, the heavier particles, um, they drop to the lower portions of the cloud, and they become more negatively charged. And then at the very, in the middle, on the top of the of the storm, um, is where you have the area where your positive charge they start piling up real quick. And remember, like I mentioned, the taller the thunderstorm the more intense this process is going to be. So height, it's, extra, it's crucial um, for a regular shower to become a thunderstorm. And in the tropics, sometimes that's, that's the difficult part to do, is to get an atmosphere that becomes unstable enough and it has the proper atmospheric conditions to allow for, for your regular showers to grow and you hit the upper levels of the atmosphere and create thunder. So once you have the separation of charges inside the cloud, if it gets intense enough, then something um, funny starts happening on the ground. The ground normally objects that are on the surface of the planet, they tend to have a positive charge with them. So now you're having uh, the negative charges piling up on the base of the cloud, on the bottom of the cloud, and you start having a lot of positive charges piling up in the points that are immediately underneath the thunderstorm. So as those grounds become positively charged, something starts happening right at the bottom of the thunderstorm. The the excess of, of negative charges, they want to move further down and meet with the excess positive charges on the ground. That's what electricity wants to do. Because at this point, that area of the planet is becoming unbalanced in terms of, it's becoming in a state of electrical unbalance. And we all know that Mother Earth doesn't like to be out of balance. Everything that happens on Earth, weather, um, climate, earthquakes, um, volcanoes, every natural phenomena that we know of, contrary to popular belief, is not punishment for human behavior. It's just the planet trying to reach a balance. It's balancing thermally, it's uh, electrical balance, or if it's a material balance where it needs to relocate resources from one point to the other. Even hurricanes. A lot of people wonder what is the usefulness of having such destructive phenomena? What good can come from hurricanes? Extremely important function the hurricanes actually do. That I sounded like Yoda on the phrase there. Because hurricanes are the most efficient mechanism for the planet to cool down the tropics and move that excessive heat into the into the northern latitudes. So basically, hurricanes are the natural radiators of the planet 
to cool itself, to cool the hot, the hottest parts of the planet on the on the summer, bring that excess heat into the colder latitudes. Thunderstorms are doing exactly the same thing, but with electricity. Mother Nature doesn't want to be out of balance. This process that you see on the screen is actually how Mother Nature accomplishes this. And that excess um, amount of charges that you have on the base of the thunderstorm is going to look for the best path it can find, normally the shortest path to the ground so that the exchange of charges can take place. And that area of that point of the atmosphere can become balanced again. And this, the thunderstorm starts producing something that is called a step leader. Um, there are other names. I think some people call it stepper leader. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was in college, uh, my professors used to call it the pilot leader. So any of those terms are actually uh, interchangeable. But the most common academic one that I've seen is step leader, and that's the one um, I'm using for the presentation. And you can see the step leader forming as a little kind of like bolt protruding from the thunderstorm, but it's still not in contact with the ground. So after the step leader forms, then you have a stream of positive charges piling up on the ground and looking for a way to go up to meet the step leader. This process normally is going to happen on the spot on the ground that is closest to the base of the thunderstorm. Therefore, lightning is always going to favor or is going to try to go for the shortest distance between the, between the ground and the base of the thunderstorm. And once both the, steep, the step leader and the upward streamer uh, meet, then you have what we call the return stroke. And once that circuit is closed, there is a net exchange of positive charges rushing from the ground all the way to the base of the thunderstorm. And for that moment, once the lightning strike happens, that that portion of the thunderstorm will become balanced again. Now, Tony, I got a question, quick yes. question for you here. You're, you're talking about on the number two with the upward streamer. Um, there's been just been some myths, and, and a couple more questions about myths a little bit later in the show. But there's one in particular that says uh, at some point where lightning is going to strike, your hair will stand up on end. Is there any truth to that whatsoever? It actually can happen. The problem is that it's so it, it happens so fast that um, most people don't even notice it. I think that what you see on YouTube sometimes, you know, you, you see people with the hair completely standing up. Those are normally hoaxes because it's not going to happen. It, it just doesn't happen like that. But I've been very close to uh, points where lightning um, actually struck, and I have failed. You actually feel um, it does feel like electricity. It almost feels like a static, you know, when almost like when you're rubbing um, two, two pieces of clothing that come out of the dryer and there's static electricity between the two of those. It feels something like that. And some of your hair can actually stand up, but it's not going to be like you see on the YouTube videos that your whole hair just stands like, like in a horror movie. It doesn't happen that way. But you can actually, you can do feel the static electricity um, especially if you're very close to the point that it's going to get struck because the reason is that the process of step number two, 
right there, it happens before the step leader and the upward streamer actually meet. It's two processes that are separate. You can actually have the step, the step leader looking kind of like producing downward um, streams and still not connecting with the upward streamer. Uh, it happens It happens very quickly. Uh, it, it, it can happen between 20, 30, 40, 50 of those flashes almost simultaneously. And at the same time, the upward streamer is going to try, it's going to build up on that point trying to meet the step leader. So in theory, you could actually feel that static electricity. That, that part is not so much a myth. The myth is the exaggeration that you see on videos and pictures um, because uh, people then, they recreate what they experience and they normally tend to overdo it. So I guess that's part of the origin of the myth is, um, is um, you have a combination of what people failed versus what they recreated later on when they were trying to describe what they were feeling. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I just yeah, remember I when I was a, you know, a kid, I was, I don't know if I was told that by adults or anything, it was just sort of something that you heard and, and even some of the interviews of people who were struck by lightning would always say, oh yeah, I felt my hair standing on end and then all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> right. When it happened to me, I, I didn't necessarily fail the, the static electricity on, on my hair. But I did. It, I just felt it all all around me. Like um, the hairs on my arms, for example, I did feel them. They 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 were. They, I could just feel it in the air. It's very. It's a very hard to describe feeling. Very hard to describe. <coughs> I think the. And I do remember that when that lightning bolt hit. I was a kid when that happened. Um, there was a dog that was very close to the to this to the strike point. And the dog started running, and it pulled me. I was holding the, the, the chain of the dog, and we were close to it, very close to a tree. And the dog started running, and it pulled me, and I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought the dog was just going mad. And the dog actually dragged me to the point where I felt the shockwave, but I was on a harm. It, would, it could have been a different. I probably, there was a chance I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys if that dog didn't do what it did. Because three seconds later, the tree was split in half and was on fire. And that would have been me and the dog basically underneath that tree. So uh, you certainly can feel it. And I'm pretty sure animals, animals can also feel that field of static electricity that builds up with the, with the upward streamer when it's actually happening. It's a fascinating, it's, it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon, if you ask me. Well, they always say that dog senses are a little bit more sensitive than our own, so I might just feel that tingly bit and think, right. oh, what is this? Run away. Correct. And they have much better hearing than us, too. So mm -hmm. so finally, when both the, the step leader and the upward streamer connect, that's when we have this return stroke. And it's, um, it's fascinating also because what we normally see is just one strike, right? with the human eye. But a lightning bolt strike is actually composed of, on the average, between 15 and 20 strokes 
Those are strokes that are being exchanged between the ground and the cloud. And it all, it all happens in a flash. The human eye just cannot see it. And we've only been able to detect those and learn about those um, with the arrival of the high-speed cameras and super high-definition cameras. Only now is that we're starting to understand how it works. And it's amazing when you see a, a lightning strike in a very high-speed camera when they, when they play it very slow, that you can actually see the strikes, the exchange of strikes. And you can count anything between 15 to 20 strokes. Like It's almost like a strobe light. <coughs> Excuse me. And all that happens so fast and so quickly, you can only actually see one continuous flash of light. I think that's extremely, that's one of the things that I find the most fascinating about, about lightning. And notice that at this point in panel three, um, the initial step, step leader has now become like a, a bona fide lightning strike with all side branches and energy is exp expanding almost in all directions. And that's what that's what we call the lightning strike. Anybody so has any comments about about this? Yeah, I was going to ask. Um, at times when when there's a storm going on and and we see a, a really strong bolt of lightning that seems to just stay in place and pulse, is that one that you say would have more? more strokes, is that what you're saying, is, is that ones that seem to last a second or a second and a half, they, they seem to kind of, they, they sort of strike and then they linger and then they pulse a couple of times before they're fizzling out. Right. Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's because, among other things, <coughs> depending on how much of charge you have in the base of the club, which is negative, versus how much charge you have on the ground that is positive. Uh, sometimes that exchange works vertically from the ground towards the cloud. Sometimes it happens from the cloud towards the ground. And those lightning balls that you, that you see that are very intense and last longer, um, that's, what we, that's what we call either strikes that are positive or negative. And the only way we can determine that is with satellites, after analyzing the data. And the difference between positive and negatives, it's, it's, it's what gives us the different nature of lightning bolts, if we want to call it that. Normally, the negative strikes, those are the ones we have to look for, because those negative strikes are the ones that carry the most energy and are the most intense. And normally, those are the ones that you very well described that last longer. And it's pretty cool nowadays. There are several websites that you can look on the internet that are going to give you lightning data, lightning images. And, and there are some onboard instruments that will actually mark them as positive and negative as they happen. And every time you see a negative strike, those, those are the powerful ones. Those are, those are probably what you saw. It was a negative strike. Interesting. Good to know. Okay, so types of lightning. Uh, most people know the lightning that we see that travels from the cloud to the ground, but there's actually uh, four main types of lightning strikes. The first one is what we call the intra-cloud or the ones that happen inside a cloud. And the scientific term for this is IC for intra-cloud. 
and this normally happens within the main tower of a thunderstorm. They, are they can be very powerful, but because they happen between regions where you have negative and positive concentrations of charges within the thunderstorm, they normally close the circuit right there and they, don't, they just don't keep going. And they normally happen in the middle and upper levels of a thunderstorm. And if you remember from our previous discussion, this is the area on the thunderstorm where you're going to have the best mix of still um, water droplets that are not fully, um, they're not fully frozen. And you're going to have a lot of concentration of different sizes of ice crystals and hail. And you can notice on the diagram that this happens on the area of the storm between minus 15 Celsius and minus 40 Celsius. So this is certainly one of the coldest areas in the thunderstorm. But for this to happen, it goes back to the same discussion we had earlier. You need an atmosphere that allows thunderstorms to grow these tall. And now you can see why height is so crucial. Because if the thunderstorm only can make it all the way to the minus 10, minus 15 Celsius, it's going to be very hard for this thunderstorm to even produce intra-cloud lightning. It's going to be maybe one or two strikes to the ground, and that's it. And those are what we call the wimpy thunderstorms that you see uh, in Florida in a day that you don't have a lot of instability in the atmosphere. So those cloud-to-cloud, cloud, those those sorry, those intra-cloud flashes that you see, they normally happen in this middle upper um, area of thunderstorms, and those are what we call the intra or inside cloud lightning or IC. The other ones are a little more common, and these ones, um, I've seen them a lot, and I love this. This is probably my favorite bolt of, of lightning to watch. It's mesmerizing. It's what we call the cloud-to-cloud -cloud or CC. And like the name um, suggests, it's the lightning bolts that happen between one cloud and a cloud that is close enough to it to exchange um, current. <coughs> but notice that it's very interesting that because both thunderstorms, the tops are charged positively, the cloud-to-cloud ex -cloud exchange has to happen from the top of one thunderstorm to the bottom of the next one. And that's what gives it that beautiful kind of like contrast that you see at night uh, that illuminates the sky because the, the, thunder, the lightning bolt is actually traveling from an area where there's a lot of water to clear, to clear skies, to dry air, and then it moves again into an area where you have a lot of of moisture and you have thunderstorm activity. So that's what gives that beautiful contrast of the cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning at night because it illuminates portions of the atmosphere of the air and the portions of the thunderstorms differently. So the areas of the thunderstorms that are being illuminated, they can have an array of colors that is going to be different from the colors that you see in the empty air between, not the empty air, but on the rain-free air between those thunderstorms. And sometimes they can they can put quite a color show in the sky. And I absolutely love nights where we can see cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning. I just love it. 
And then the third type of lightning is uh, what we call cloud to air or CA. And this actually can happen because even when we have clear skies and you see either blue skies or you see stars, there is one type of cloud that can actually form and it's mainly composed of ice crystals, which means it's basically invisible. You cannot see it with your naked eye or it's so faint in the atmosphere that the human eye has a hard time actually seeing the cloud and it's called a cirrus cloud. And these are stable, fair weather clouds, but sometimes they can have enough ice in them and enough processes of ice and maybe super cold droplets that they can actually function as a secondary uh, source for electrical charges. And then you see a bolt of lightning that generates from a cloud and goes into thin air. It seems like it's going nowhere. But it's actually going to a spot where you may have ice crystals, you just cannot see them with your eye. And of course, the one that we all know, uh, the one the, pe the people get exposed to, which is the cloud to ground lightning, and the short is CG. And cloud to ground is the one that causes um, all the spectacular lightning thunderstorms that we see. It's also the ones that causes the injuries and causes the fatalities that we have on the ground. One type of cloud to ground lightning is called cloud to water. It's a variation of cloud. To, it's, it's looking for the ground. It just happens um, over the ocean. So that's why we call it cloud to water. It can, also, it can also happen in big lakes like Lake Okeechobee. Can also experience cloud to water lightning. And these two types, of, these are the ones that are dangerous to humans for all the reasons we have discussed here um, in this talk. So every time you are witnessing lightning around you and you can hear thunder, go inside a sturdy structure such a house or a car. A lot of people confuse um, safety reaction from a tornado um, and they think it's the, that's the same as looking for shelter for when you're experiencing lightning. And a lot of people leave their cars when they're experiencing thunder and they're experiencing lightning. Actually, your car is your best bet if you're in the open. If there are no structures to run to, stay inside your car because the metal structure of your car is going to protect you from the lightning bolt. It's not, your, it's not your rubber shoes. It's not the rubber tires. It's the metal structure that takes the hit and then that redirects all that energy towards the ground away from your body. So. If you're trapping a lightning storm and there's lightning occurring, you don't have a structure to go, stay in your car, just make sure you keep your, your arms and your legs inside the car at all times. Of course, stay away from tall objects. We all know this because, like we said before, lightning is going to try to go for the tallest point. So antennas. Um, ham radio antennas, communication antennas, anything that is pointy and tall, trees, the street poles. Um, actually, if you're playing golf, 
and you're in the middle of a, of a field of the golf course and there's nothing but you, um, do you want to take a guess on who's, what's the tallest point in that golf course? You. Especially when you're driving the club. Upward, I'll take a right? guess. That's <laughs> the metal club. All right. So when you get ready to strike the ball, and that's that's you are becoming the tallest point in that golf course. So take action. If you can hear thunder, stay away from tall objects. Look for shelter, <coughs> and also stay away from um, bodies of water because water is very efficient in conducting electricity. If you're trapped outside and there's nowhere to run. Um, the best choice is to try to squat low to the ground, try to touch as little of the ground as possible. But honestly, guys, if you're trapped in the middle of a lot, if there's frequent continuous lighting around you and you're trapped outside, your chances are very small that even squatting is going to do something. So don't let yourself be caught in that situation. Just look Tony, I got a quick question about that. Yes. Um, I've been asked by a couple of people that are into stand-up paddle boarding. Uh, what what do they do? They're out on the water. Um, they've gotten themselves in a in a situation where there's lightning going on, and they they're pretty far away. Some of these some of these uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, they stand up paddleboard for miles. So for them to get caught in a thunderstorm out over the open water, uh, they've asked me what I think. I I simply say. Try to lay down. Try to get your your profile lower to the water, if you can. And maybe possible. paddle on your belly. Is that does that sound uh, like a good idea to you? That's the only thing you can do. There's nothing else you can do. You don't want to jump in the water. Mm -hmm. And the best well, the best thing to do is that as soon as you hear the rumbles of thunder, paddle as fast as you can towards the shore. That's right. That's that's the first and foremost thing you have to do. If you do not react and you want to play the odds that the thunderstorm is moving away and now you're in the middle of the ocean and the thunderstorm explodes all around you and there's lightning bolts all over the place, the only thing you can do is, like you say, try to lay flat on your board. Because if you get hit, then you're maximizing the chances that the, the energy is being spread out horizontally. Trust me, you're going to be hurt badly. Chances are you're going to die. But you're maximizing the chances of surviving if you're hit by a lightning bolt in the middle of the ocean. But again, the best thing to do is do not let yourself be caught in that situation. As soon as you hear thunder and you see lightning forming in the distance, just wait for another day, paddle as fast as you can to the shore, and live to live to tell the story and live to, to try it again the next day or whenever you have good weather. That's a good, very good question. Very good question. Now as you can see, uh, Mother Nature doesn't follow the rules that we that we normally want to believe um, that are set in stone. And we've been saying that lightning always looks for the tallest point for the the, the tallest um, um, object that you have, that is actually not necessarily true all the time. This lightning bolt was captured by a security camera in a very tall building. It's pointing towards the, the parking lot. 
and this building has a communications antenna, but it actually has a lightning rod, a device that is scientifically engineered to attract lightning so that all the lightning strikes happen on the rod and protect people and protect property elsewhere. Well, Mother Nature does what she's going to do, and in this particular case, the point that was better positively charged for the step leader and the upward streamer to meet was not on the lightning rod or the antennas or the top of the building. It was actually the lowest point, which was a parking lot. But there was a there was a, a a parking light, a little pole there. You can see one on the right-hand corner of the of the picture. There was one of those between those cars, and that's where that's the point where the lightning ball actually happened. And you can see that's a very impressive, very nice picture. So, in other words, there is no safe place outside when you're in the open. There's no such thing as a safe place from lightning. Do not assume that because you're in the parking lot and you're next to a very tall building and the tall building has antennas on top of it, and you can even see a lightning rod on top of the building, never assume that you're safe. Oh, because if, if lightning's going to happen, it's going to happen up there. I'm fine down here. This picture is worth a million words. And in this picture, actually, um, there was a lady, you cannot see it because it's so blurred, but there was a lady on a vehicle next to the lightning bolt. She was putting her groceries in the trunk. And she got third-degree third burn injuries. And she, she was not where the making bolt struck. But she lived to tell. So, again, there is no such thing. There's no safe place outside. I don't know if you guys can see this video, but this is one of my favorite videos. Oh, can you guys see it? I think it's still loading. Okay. So if you cannot see the video playing, I'm just going to go move ahead to the still that I have. Can you guys see the still image? Yes. Let me yep, see. Sir. So this is a classic, classic situation where people get caught um, by a bad decision, and a lot of times you can pay the price, like it happened to me. When it happened with them, the episode of the dog and the tree happened to me, I was a kid. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no knowledge. What happens is that a lot of people run towards trees if they're, in the, if they're outside when it starts raining, because sometimes the rain is going to happen before the first crack of thunder or lightning bolt happens. And your natural reaction is to run towards the nearest tree. That is the last thing you want to do. And actually, last year alone, most injuries and fatalities that happened in Florida happened because people were running towards trees or were sitting underneath a tree. And I, I emphasize injuries because most of the time, we see numbers for statistics that only talk about fatalities. And those numbers are relatively low. The other statistic that most people don't even hear about is the injuries. Injuries are between 
I would say 10, 15, 20 times more compared to fatalities. And injuries range from just minor burns to horrific burns, brain damage, and even amputations. And a lot of those, like I said, in Florida alone last year, the majority of injuries and fatalities happened because people ran towards the nearest tree. And that's when they got struck. So never, never use trees as shelter or coverage if you are experiencing thunder or lightning. Even from rain is dangerous because you never know when a shower will grow tall enough and starts produce, can start producing lightning well after the rain shaft has started. Always keep that in mind. There's no such thing as a safe place outside. Now, Tony, before you move on to the next slide, um, talking about injuries, I remember earlier lightning can exchange over a, a billion volts of electricity, um, yeah. and it can also be 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit in the, the vicinity of the bolt. Um, which one of those factors, or is it a combination of the two, or one sometimes, one the other, which causes the worse injuries um, and more common for a lightning strike? Very good question. Most, it's, a, it's a combination. It's a combination. Because the third degree burns, or, or, or death by burn, it happens because of the massive heat expansion of the air. So, you, it's, I don't know if you guys have seen, like, in the movies when there's like an atomic bomb explosion, you know, those sci-fi movies, and you have the shockwave of the explosion setting everything on fire. And you're like, wait, well, why are things bursting on fire if even things that are well away from the, from the epicenter of the explosion? It's because the air itself <clears throat> is being burned. The air itself is heating to such a degree that the air is igniting around the vicinity of the lightning bolt. But this only happened, like I said, in that, in that radius that is around 10, 20 yards just in the immediate vicinity of the, of the lightning bolt. So it's the massive heat that causes the most damage to the human body. But if you're close enough to the bolt, even the side branches can carry enough electricity to actually electrocute you. So the point is, you don't need to be right on, on if you see the picture that I have, you don't need to be right at the spot where that lightning bolt is hitting. If you're close enough, some of that massive amount of bolts and electricity can actually jump radially outside and hit you. And that's why I posed a question in the beginning of the presentation. Because there's two school of thoughts here. If you ask me, I actually think that people that survive lightning strikes, they do because they're not hit by the main bolt. They're actually hit by the side branches. But uh, back to your question, even if you're not electrocuted, you still can get horrific burns because the heat expansion combined with the, with the side branches, the electricity from the side branches can cause you, can cause the human body massive burns, massive burns, everything from third degree burn. And like I said, to the point that basically your 
one of your extremities can become literally ash, and it has to be amputated. Um, and in Puerto Rico, that's the most common of injuries is amputation because of lightning strikes. And, and here in Florida, it's actually fatalities. So it's a combination of both, like you say. But more than the electricity, that heat expansion, the heating of the air, that massively um, um, heated column of air right in the vicinity of the lightning bolt, when it travels upward, that shock wave, that's what causes most of the severe burns in, in lightning strike injuries. Very good question. Anybody has any other comments or questions before I continue? I, I think that was a good one. Uh, and like you said, it's yes. that one billion volts is very intimidating. But um, it's incredible. I, I cannot wrap it around my mind. It's just so huge that I cannot even. As I'm a scientist and I've done this, I do this for a living, and I still cannot wrap that concept around my head that you can have such an incredible amount of power in, in such a small, you know, it's just amazing. And I thought the pan I touched those 350 degrees out of the oven. Well, one more thing that I want to show you guys that lightning doesn't stop when it hit a tree. It doesn't stop when it hits water and it doesn't have to stop when it hits the ground. It also travels horizontally. And some people and some victims can actually fall prey if they don't take proper measures. And when it travels horizontally, it's going to look for the best conductor on the ground. And as you can see, these poor cows, they learn the hard way that when you hear thunder, when thunder roars, go indoors, the last thing you want to do is to get close or remain in contact with metal objects on the ground. And you can see that this lightning strike did not hit anywhere in the vicinity of these clouds because there's no apparent damage anywhere. These poor cows are just eating grass on the wrong side of the fence. Lightning struck nearby, very close to the fence, and the, 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 those um, side branches, that electricity just traveled through the um, through the fence and poor cows got electrocuted right there. So be safe, be smart, don't be a cow. Because Mother Nature doesn't take prisoners. If you challenge Mother Nature, you can trust me, you're going to lose. Safety first, especially you and those that depend on your decisions. Because a lot of times, we we can suffer of the Superman syndrome. We we think we can conquer anything. We think there's nothing in this world that can stop me. You know, uh, I can handle everything. If you want to take the risk yourself, that's fine. That's your decision. But your kids, your family, will depend on your decisions. Your children, your small kids, they cannot take decisions by themselves. They don't know. So always think safety first. And if not for yourself, do it for your family, for your loved ones. Because your loved ones, 
not only are going to depend on your wise decisions, they're also going to suffer the consequences of your decisions. And challenging Mother Nature and trying to play the hero when thunderstorms are roaring all around you, that is the worst thing you can do in terms of safety. So there's much more information on the internet. NOAA and the Weather Service, we have a very good site dedicated just for lightning. It's called www.lightningsafety.noaa.gov. It's right there on the screen. And you can Google. It's very easy to find. You can find everything you need to know. You can find outreach and education material. If you want to do presentations on your own, you can find a lot of goodies there that are going to make for a very good, um, compelling case for safety. Um, and like we always say, when thunder roars, go, in there, go indoors, stay safe, make the right decisions. And thanks for your attention. I really appreciate the opportunity of being here with you guys tonight. And questions and, or comments, let's, let's open the floor for you guys now. Tony, uh, I think in Kit and Ricky, I'm not sure if, if you're aware of it. I know James and Scotty are not on the show, but wasn't there someone who was affected by lightning along the fence at the Charlotte Motor Speedway a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, we had yes. a, uh, a lightning strike of a gentleman who was near the Charlotte Motor Speedway gate and was trying to, quote, get his dinner and, and was uh, struck by lightning after the struck, strike hit in turn four and actually traveled down the fence uh, struck where he was holding it. So. Wow. Yep. Yeah, always a reminder, it doesn't always have to be a metal object, uh, as you stated earlier, with trees and, and anything else, even kite lines, anything that's that's high profile. Um, <laughs> I did want to ask, I know that we've, we've, we're nearing 9.15 to 9.30, um, there's one question I did want to ask, and I think a lot of viewers uh, would probably want to know, is there any truth to doing a count between the time that you see a flash of lightning and then the time that you hear thunder? There's some truth to that. There's, there's some truth to it because the light travels much faster than sound. So sometimes you can see the lightning bolt, <coughs> excuse me, and it's gonna, sometimes it's going to pass before you actually hear the thunder. Because what I just said is because light, and tra light travels much faster than sound. However, um, is it a good practice for you to play the odds and start counting and you say, well, it's 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, oh, it's far enough. I still have enough. We can finish. We can finish the soccer game or we can finish the baseball. We can play one more, one more inning before we. And that's that's when you that's when you get into trouble. So, in terms of physics, in terms of science, it is true that there's a correlation between the visual light of a light of a bolt and the moment you hear the thunder. Of course, the closer that lightning bolt happens to you, then the faster you're going to hear the thunder. And when you've seen the crack of light and the thunder immediately following, you're in trouble. That thunderstorm is right overhead. But my message is that it's a very bad practice to try to time yourself. To use the counting seconds for you to decide to take action or not, that is what, if you, if you now put in context 
all the discussion we've been having for the last hour, all this discussion is to convince people to not do that. Because first of all, the human ear is very deceiving. And sometimes you may have the impression that the storm is moving away. You can be counting faster or slower. It's, you know, we're humans, we're, we're not perfect. And you can get the wrong impression that the storm is moving away when the storm is actually getting closer to you because also remember, from those diagrams that I showed earlier, um, lightning doesn't happen in the same area of the thunderstorm all the time. The bolts that happen from the immediate bottom base of the thunderstorm to the ground, the sound of that thunder can actually reach you faster than the lightning bolts that are happening from cloud to cloud, cloud to air, or cloud to ground from a higher portion of the thunderstorm in the backside. So if you first hear one lightning bolt from the base that is closer to you, and the same thunderstorm 10 minutes, 15 seconds later produces another lightning strike with thunder on the backside of the thunderstorm, that's going to give you the wrong impression that the thunderstorm is moving away. Because those two bolts didn't happen in the same area of the thunderstorm. The thunder of the first bolt got to you faster than the thunder from the second bolt, but it's because it happened in different portions of the same storm. And now you get the wrong idea, the wrong impression that the thunderstorm is moving away from you. Oh, because the second thunder sounded one second later. That storm still is moving towards you. It's just that you got the wrong impression because we just don't have enough information for this technique to have any kind of validity. Very good question. I appreciate you making it because that's yet another myth that we have trouble debunking to tell people never don't play the odds, don't count because it's very misleading. It can be deceiving, and if and it's plain and simple, if you can hear thunder, you are within striking distance. When thunder roars, go indoors. And yet another caveat to that counting method is that when you have a thunderstorm that has very frequent or near continuous lightning, you can't tell which thunder, which bolt is closer or further away. It's just so many flashes and so much rumbling. Correct. Excellent. Uh, any other questions from Kit or Ricky? I think you, you did a really good job of covering uh, every single topic of how it forms, uh, what different types there are, and um, just general safety for uh, what happens when a thunderstorm is approaching you. So, yeah, that was, a, my... was a, I was just saying, it's, it's a great, great presentation. Um, Thank you very much. I, I, I really, in, in behalf of the Weather Service, I really want to thank you guys for the opportunity. Always a pleasure, and this is what we need to do. We need to use, you know, all the resources we can to reach out to the public and pass the message. And you guys now have that's homework. You have to pass the message of safety. Every person that you know, every time you have a chance, pass the message. Help us. Um, what we call um, the goal that we have in the Weather Service of reaching a weather-ready nation. This is an integral part of that. So we appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Okay, with that, Ricky, would you like to wrap up the show?
Sure, I can do that. Seriously, though, I've been kind of quiet over here, but I, I echo everything that Shay and Kit have said. You've been a, a excellent guest, and we really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some of your knowledge. Anytime. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the beginning. I just want to ask, how much does your office use your uh, Spanish speaking abilities, like from you being from Puerto Rico? Yeah, um, every time we yeah, every time we have the chance, um, we I, I I'm one of those that um, I'm always pushing for bilingual products here in the office. And every time every time I have a chance, I post something in Spanish on Facebook and Twitter. I don't know if you guys follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you don't, um, that's a good that's a good um, um, Facebook um, and Twitter to 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 like and to follow. Because every time we issue a product, especially like a, an advisory or a warning, it automatically goes into Facebook and Twitter. And then um, on a daily basis, we also have informational posts that we do on Facebook. And a lot of times I do a Spanish version of those. So if you're not following our social media, weather service um, here in Miami, it's very easy to find. Just Google it. Um, I strongly recommend it because we are starting now to develop a full-fledged program where we're going to offer Spanish um, um, services and resources to Miami. And we can do interviews in Spanish. We work a lot with the Spanish um, channels, like Telemundo, Univision. And, and now, we've, now that we have social media and this kind of technology available, um, I personally want to push for more interactions with the Hispanic community around South Florida. Because as you guys know, um, Spanish here is everywhere. Even I was even I was overwhelmed when I got here. Because honestly, outside of the office, if I don't want to, I don't have to use English. It's amazing. But I want to keep using it because I don't, you know, um, if if I get used to speak so much Spanish around here, then I start forgetting my English. So <laughs> So, so uh, when, when you were brought onto the weather service, I mean, is that something, because we have a lot of people who watch this show, you know, who, who want to be meteorologists, is that something that obviously is a, a plus when they're looking to hire someone in some of these offices? For Miami, it, it helps. If you're bilingual, you, then you certainly you're going to have, you have an, you're going to have an extra point in your work application. And that certainly was a factor when I applied for this office. Absolutely. Cool. All right. It reminds me, Ricky. I have one more, one more question. We always ask our guests, "What, what got you interested?" Tell us a little bit about you. How you got interested in weather? Was there a specific event when you were young? You mentioned something about lightning in your childhood, but what got you interested in weather? More than the lightning um, event that I had, it was um, actually the first time that I thought about weather. It's, it's going to sound funny, but I was. I was actually in, in, let's see, I was on second, first grade or second grade, I think. I'm not, not sure exactly. It was Hurricane David back in the late 70s when we had a string of hurricanes coming through the, Car the Caribbean and Puerto Rico. And I remember that um, those days, there were no like satellite warnings. There were no, not even radars at this. Back in those days, you get a hurricane warning when the hurricane somebody saw it 
on a boat like like 50 miles offshore. You know, there were no there were no computers. It was back then. So when they actually give the alarm that there's a hurricane that's going to hit the island, you only had hours to prepare. You went from zero to full-fledged reaction. You didn't even have a day sometimes. So I remember the day that Hurricane David was getting close to the island, and they called the parents, come and pick the kids, because there's a hurricane coming, and these kids, you need to take these kids out of school. And I remember when we all got out of the classrooms, you know, and they're ringing the bells. All the kids went outside. They were all running and playing because we have a day off, you know, to play. And I was the only kid that was standing in the middle of the field, and I was looking at the clouds. And at that young age, I was wondering, why are the clouds moving the wrong way? The clouds are actually moving the other way. Instead of moving from east to west, they're moving from northwest to southeast. That was the first time in my brain that something extraordinary is happening here. I don't know what it is. I had no clue what was happening. But it had a huge impact because something big that I don't understand is happening that is so powerful that it's actually changing the way the clouds behave. It was the first time that I, I became weather aware. And I had no clue what was, what was thinking and why I was thinking like that. When my mother came to pick me up, she's like, why are you standing here? Because all the kids were playing in the, in the playground. And when I told her the reason, at that moment, she knew I was going to be a weatherman. <laughs> that is cool. From a preparedness standpoint, were people more prepared when they had only a couple hours to react or uh, more prepared now when they have days to react? Oh, no, people were so unprepared back then. They were so unprepared. The only difference, that's a good question. I, I know we're running late, but I'm just going to share this with you because it's something to keep in mind for, for future generations. The 40s and 50s were so brutal in Puerto Rico. We had, it was an outbreak of hurricanes those, those two decades. They caused so massive damage, the government got really tired of having to rebuild the infrastructure every time a hurricane hit. So in the early 60s, they passed legislation so that all houses had to be built complete in concrete, the whole thing. The walls, even the, the roof, had to be concrete. So one thing that really helped us as a society is that as houses were built with this with, with concrete standards and not wood, now your house becomes your shelter. Even if a cat five hits the island, the majority of the population can stay in your home. You're not gonna lose your home. You have to just close, you know, you close your windows, you close your doors, you put your hurricane shutters. But your house is your is your shelter. And chances are that if you live in a wood house, you have a family member that lives in a nice, big, concrete house. So you can, you, your house is your shelter, or you can go take shelter with a family member. This, this takes a lot of tremendous amount of pressure off the government in terms of responding and preparedness. Because <clears throat> in Puerto Rico, one thing 
we don't know, and I grew up not knowing of is this massive evacuations that you see here in the US, like those massive evacuations from Katrina and even Hurricane Charlie, that actually, ironically, people evacuating from Charlie, a lot of people actually left their perfectly built homes to go look shelter on hotels and motels. And they ended up actually putting themselves in even greater danger than remaining at home. Because these motels and hotels here in Florida, they, they are not built to with, under any kind of codes to be used as shelters for damaging strong winds. So it's ironic that back then that we had so little resources and like you mentioned, we, we had no lead time in terms of preparedness. But because most houses were and are still made out of concrete, you did not have these, these massive catastrophes that you saw on Andrew here in 92. That you had community, community after community after community demolished. Those houses were literally demolished, completely destroyed. And so many people displaced and how many people literally homeless after Andrew after Katrina and and that's something that we have to keep in mind is it and that's I'm glad that you asked that question because this this brings this the the idea that maybe in the coastal areas in the US that are vulnerable to strong big hurricanes maybe we should start thinking about doing something with the construction codes here because um, they're gonna happen it's just a matter of time and all the research indicates that we might be heading into um, into an era, an era. I'm talking the next decades, couple of decades, where we're going to see another increase, overall increase in hurricane activity in the Atlantic. That'll be interesting to see if that does come to fruition. Yeah, we we were um do we were trying to get a three part series together to to do a study on what coastal communities are doing to prepare for that kind of thing and I think we still want to pursue that through the summer uh, even if it's a broken up three-part series and get some of the, the county governments to chime in on what their preparedness is because here in Charleston their last one was Floyd in 1999 and that was wow <laughs> can't say enough about it and, and it, I mean there's there's a whole we could do a whole show on that maybe we could have you back for that show as well sure yeah actually I was gonna Comment with you guys. Do you guys ever heard of what happened on Charlie, Hurricane Charlie, in in Arcadia? Never heard that story. I don't think I've heard the story. <laughs> During Hurricane Charlie, a lot of people waited until the last minute to evacuate. They left their houses and they were directed to a structure that is called the Agricultural, the Turner Agricultural Agricultural Center in Arcadia. It's in Charlotte County, you can Google it. Turner Agri Center. They had about 2,000 people in this structure, which is like a giant barn, because everybody thought this building was strong enough to withstand Charlie's impact. What they were not expecting is, expecting is that Charlie just moved a little bit further to the right of the, of the expected track. The eye of Charlie went straight right over this agricultural center in Arcadia. 
and you have 2,000 people in this facility, and in the, in the peak of the storm, when the eye hit them, half of the roof blown away. The, the structure literally opened up just, just like, a, like a can, with a can opener. Can you imagine you have that amount of people and now they are in an open area exposed to 140 mile per hour sustained winds, debris flying all over, the roof is collapsing on top of them. I mean, just imagine the chaos, the chaos of this situation. Nobody died, miraculously, nobody died because there were trained emergency responders in there and when they saw that the roof was vibrating and it was getting ready to give away, they started pushing people towards the walls and towards the inner um, hallways and the bathrooms, which were made out of concrete. And people were literally, they were piling on top of each other to protect each other. That's why they, that's how they survived. But the area, the open area of the structure, the whole roof, completely collapsed on top of them. And there were people that, they were in such a panic, they started running to running outside. They were running into the hurricane because they thought, we bet I will take my chances exposed to the wind and the debris outside rather than staying in there and be crushed by the ceiling that is, that is collapsing right on top of us. That kind of situation, we need to avoid that. That's why education and planning and knowing, have a plan, knowing what to do is so important, which brings us back to the, to the, to the point that we're discussing. Planning, how, what kind of structures we're going to designate as shelters, how people are going to, do you know where to go, do you have an evacuation plan, do you know what to do with your family to go for shelter if a big hurricane is approaching. Very interesting questions, and they need to be discussed, absolutely. Google it. Um, Arcadia Turner Agricultural Center. You'll, you'll be fascinated by the pictures. All righty. We will uh, wrap it up there. I will go Google some stuff, and we will get this <laughs> ready for maybe another show, because it sounds like a, a, a Charlie could be a whole other topic just in itself. So. Absolutely. Once again, we thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been the... August 10th edition of the Carolina Weather Group. We'll be back next week with another rounding edition that I don't know what it is yet because Scott usually handles that. So uh, he'll be back next week, too, to help organize this show as well. So thank you guys for tuning in tonight, and have a great night.